0: Good morning everybody. This is the sixth week of our series and final week of our series Intensive Care and I'm going to end where I started, which is, um, this is a personal story that I've shared with you about a time when I hit the wall and lessons that I learned and I I feel today just like I felt at the first talk. Um, I asked the uh, tech people, can you just tape this once and then just show it for the next three services. And the reason why I say that is uh, I, I'm, I'm by nature a very shy person. You know, you could think if you watch me that I'm the person who likes the stage, but I don't. I'm, I'm a shy person, and it freaks me out that all of you are looking at me, <laughs> and uh, the television cameras and all that. So I have to be thinking about my material, or else I'll just be like the deer caught in the head- headlights. But w- w- what's really challenging about this is that I have to go to a place on a personal level it's kind of awkward and I have to share with you personal feelings about when I hit the wall and, and that's a little bit more transparent than I'm comfortable being. I've always been a transparent person but to share with you lessons that I learned when I went through the most difficult time in my life requires me to be a little vulnerable that I'm more vulnerable than I'm comfortable being but I've done this for a couple of reasons and, and one of them is this if God has taught me lessons During a really uh, challenging time in my life, and I don't share them with you, and you hit the wall, and I learned something that could have helped you, then I I think that's criminal negligence on my part. Even though I might be more comfortable not sharing this story, I I just feel like that would be criminal negligence on my part, not to show you what God has taught me since I'm your leader. And there's a second reason why I felt like it's really important for me to share with you. What has not been comfortable for me to share during intensive care is I just, I I love the kind of church that New Spring is. Some of us have come from a a church environment where there was a sort of plastic Christianity where everybody looked a certain way and everybody just pretended that they didn't have issues and problems. And I don't think that's healthy. I want New Spring to be the kind of place where you can come in and say, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm dealing with an issue. And for that reason, I feel like as leader, I, I, I do want to just let you know, you don't ever get to the place in life, no matter how strong you are before God, you never get to the place where you don't, you don't deal with personal weaknesses and challenges. And so I want you, I, I, even though I'm not comfortable sharing these things, I want to share them with you. And this morning, I just want to walk you through one of the biggest lessons that I learned in my life in a really dark time. Last year, as I've shared with you several times, I uh, had been through a time of exhaustion and New Spring had grown dramatically for for seven years. The irony about last year was in all the 26 years that I've led New Spring Church, I've led New Spring through some very, very difficult times. I could keep you here for the next hour talking to you about catastrophes that happened and and unbelievable challenges and and during all that I was the captain at the helm, and, and I, I prided myself on looking like it didn't affect me at all, and I, I could stand at the on the stage or sit at the head of the boardroom table and say, here's what we're going to do, and yet here I was at the end of last year, and really nothing bad was happening other than the fact that I had some health issues that couldn't be resolved, and I was getting worse and worse, and I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me, and I was just stressed out to the point of exhaustion, but I found myself... I found myself running down, and everybody who was around me watched it happen. It was almost like a battery-operated device when you see the light dimming and the machinery slowing down. You just watch it shutting down in front of your face. And all the people who love me were watching it happen. I'm very energetic. I'm very verbal. And and Mary Alice especially and those who are in my inner circle on the staff here were just like watching a mark that they had never seen before. And I'm freaked out by it. But I'm trying to go on like like nothing is really wrong, and and yet at the same time I'm shutting down. And I remember one Friday morning in December, I was driving to work, and Mary Alice happened to be with me in the car. And Mary Alice finally crossed the line and said, "Okay, what do you want to do?" And I'm going to say a name that a lot of you are not going to recognize, but I I said to her, I said, "I I really need to talk to a man of God." And By that, she understood what I meant. I I need to talk to somebody who leads a ministry. I want to talk to somebody who understood my world, but yet at the same time, I wanted to talk to somebody who was real and transparent, and I knew they had a real, genuine relationship with God. The name that I'm going to mention is a guy that I always felt was America's greatest pastor, and for some reason, he was kind to me, and, and he spent time with me through the years, and his name was Adrian Rogers. He pastored Bellevue Baptist Church. He's still on television but adrian went to be with the lord in 2005 and and i said if adrian was still alive i'd be on a plane to memphis i just said i i need to talk to somebody who really has a relationship with god and understands my world and so i came on into the office and i was trying to work on this this friday i was trying to put finishing touches on the talk that i would deliver four times like i always do but i was just getting weaker and weaker as i sat in my office i remember staring at my computer screen and trying to study the bible And come up with final things, but I was just getting worse and worse. And what I did not know was that Mary Alice was behind the scenes conspiring to take care of what I had told her I would like. And she was working with our executive, Pastor Billy Poore, and on the phone with friends around the country. And and about 3 o'clock she came into my office and she said, the car is packed, we've got airplane tickets, and she said we're flying out right now and she didn't know if I was going to go along with it or not but she said you've got an, you're going to talk to there's a pastor in Atlanta who pastors a huge church and a guy for whom I had a measurable respect and she said you're going to be talking with him and I, I did something I almost never do I'm not a real emotional person next thing I know I just started I just started crying and I said let's go so we got in the car and we were on the airplane and we're flying to atlanta and while we're flying to atlanta billy poor my executive pastor started doing research on this pastor and what he discovers in several national publications this particular pastor had hit the same wall that i hit just a few months before and mary alice didn't tell me that and so all the time he and i are sitting in his office talking mary alice and his wife are walking the campus of this phenomenal church and she said to mary alice well, as Mary Alice told her what I was dealing with, she said, well, my husband went through the same thing, and he's not well yet. They may be a pair in there, <laughs> which is true. We've become, we've become best friends, and in fact, I, I spent the last week, we've done a lot of things together since, then, the four of us. And and But during the time that Mary Alice was talking to this pastor's wife, she said, you know, when my husband hit the wall, she said it was so important because he said, he said he's just like your husband. He's a dick. you got to understand, what I get to do is narcotic. I love my job. I used to love to play golf. I used to love to do stuff. But when God started touching New Spring Church, my job is so creative. I get to wear so many hats. I get to do so many things. Nothing rises to the level of what I get to do. If you knew how much fun I had, you, you wouldn't pay me. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't like to take time off. I'm like a caged panther. I love what I do. And he was the same way. And, and when he hit that wall, you know, she said, we just had to get away. And she convinced Mary Alice that what I needed was I need to take time off and get just completely away from everything. So, I mean, I, I'm f- we're flying back home. And again, Mary Alice is conspiring and, and with, with, with leadership of my staff and the board. And she announces to me, we're going to just get away from it all for a while and and she said, the board has just said, hey, you know, they provided a wonderful place for us to go to get away. And, and I'm just like thinking, I don't want to do this, but I'm shutting down. And a lot of you are new to New Spring, and you won't remember this has happened, happened in December, but I was getting on the airplane, that, before I got on the airplane, we got up really early in the morning, we were flying to Phoenix. And I knew I had to say something to you so that you would know what was going on. So I I got on my computer and I typed out a message to you. And I said something to the effect that, you know, the stress and the anxieties that I dealt with. And every once in a while a counselor needs a counselor and a pastor needs a pastor. I didn't send it out. I just kept it on the computer with me. And I wouldn't send it out until that afternoon when we got to Phoenix. And I just got to tell you, it was the toughest time in my life. It was just the most difficult time i I'd, I'd been through all kinds of challenges but i had never felt as low as i felt during that time and could i just tell you what i felt like i felt like an absolute failure i mean i felt like i had let god down i felt like i'd let Mary Alice down i felt like i had let down everybody important in my life because all my life i've been so strong and so able to handle really difficult things here i was in a scenario that really was filled with good things And i thought god here's what i thought i grew up in in church like some of you did i thought god must not be happy with me and sure enough when i opened my heart to god god said yeah mark there are some issues that you need to deal with first of all you don't love me like you should and all these things that you do you do because they're your duty and your responsibility somewhere along the way you've quit doing what you do just out of pure love for me and you got to deal with that And, and i heard that message and i looked at what i was going through and i said okay I see what's going on in my life. God is unhappy with me. And this is an old term that a lot of you who didn't grow up in church, you won't know. I thought, God is chastening me. In Texas, where I grew up, we would call it a whooping. (laughs) I thought, God is whipping Mark. But let me just tell you what I found really strange at that moment. And it goes to what I want to talk to you about. I'm fully expecting God just to unleash all the judgment in my life that I feel like I so richly deserve for not loving him like I should. But all of a sudden, I'm puzzled by something. I'm puzzled by things that surprise me of God's goodness. Before we even came home from Atlanta, my cousin is Anita Renfrow. She's a Christian entertainer, a Christian comedian. Some of you may have seen her on Good Morning America, or you may have caught one of her comedy concerts. Or She did a MomSense video that went viral. In fact, I saw her this week, and she was getting ready to get on a plane to go to New York to tape for the Today Show in Australia. She said she's big down there. They play her video every Mums Day. And Anita's one of the funniest human beings I've ever met in my life. And she's funny whether she's on stage or she's funny whether she's sitting in my car. She's just funny all the time. She's, and she's my cousin, but she's more like a, a, a sister to me. And, and, and she found out, you know, Marils had talked to her, and Anita, I think, was doing a gig in Seattle, and we weren't going to be able to, to connect. And she went out of her way to get an earlier flight because she said, i got to talk to Mark. And it turned out that she happened to be flying into Atlanta Airport just as we were getting ready to fly out. And we were at the gateway to go. And Anita called Mar- Mary Allison and said, I got to talk to Mark. And so I still remember riding the Marta down to the baggage claim where Anita was. And you can sort of visualize the Atlanta Airport if you've been there. And, and here we are, we're surrounded by hundreds of people. And here's my cousin, I mean, well known entertainer and funny human being. But I I watched her as she broke down and sobbed in front of everybody, and she held my head in her hands, and she said, that wonderful braid that comes up with so many creative ways to explain God's word is not thinking right right now. And I just felt the love that she had for me, and she said, as she talked to me, unashamedly weeping in front of everybody, she said, I'm not just gonna pray for you, I'm gonna fast for you, and for a Hoover not to eat. I wanna tell you what, that's really serious. (laughs) And then when Mary Alice told me what you know, our board was making such provision to me. I said, "Why, are, why are they being so good to me?" And Marielis said, "They said you've been pouring into their life for 25 years, and they wanted to pour into your life." And I had Mariales, who was there with me 24 hours a day, you know, seven days a week listening to me and, and I, I thought why is she being so good to me and then finally at, when we got to phoenix about four o'clock i hit send and i sent out the messages that explained where i was going to be i didn't go into all the detail i have in the series but i don't know a lot of you must have had your finger on the resend key or the reply key because the moment that message hit all of a sudden it felt like hundreds of emails began to pour in and you didn't just say that you were praying for me, although everybody said that. And it wasn't just like, Mark, take the time that you need and get well, because everybody said that. But it was amazing to me, because so many began to write me, and you began to tell me things like, Mark, God has used you to change my life. And so many people wrote me and said, Mark, I wouldn't have known Jesus if it, had, if it hadn't been for you. And I would try to read, and I'd start crying, and I'd hand the computer to Mary. She'd try to read, she'd start crying, hand the computer back to me. <laughs> And after all that, she asked me, how do you feel? I am a wordsmith. I came up with words. Four times a week at least here at New Spring and other places, I stand on the stage and I talk to people, and I write, and I'm accustomed to coming up with words. But all of a sudden, words came out of me that came from such a deep place that they surprised me when, I heard, when my ears heard what came out of my own mouth. I said, I feel like I'm on an island of doubt, surrounded by a sea of grace. And when I said doubt, I didn't mean doubting of God. I mean self-doubt. I thought, man, I I just want answers. I don't know why I am where I am. And I felt like I failed God. And I can't imagine. I never thought I'd ever be in a place like this. And here I am. I feel like I'm on an island of doubt surrounded by a sea of grace. Basically, I couldn't figure out why God was being so good to me. Do you know what the message of this book is? The message of this book is just one thing. People tell me every once in a while, I wish I could understand the Bible. Let me just tell you what. If you want to understand the Bible, there's just one thing in here that you need to know. It's a question. This book asks you and me a question. And that question is, can you trust a person? Everything else is ancillary to that. Everything else is just a sidelight to that. This whole book asks you a question. Can you put your confidence in a person? His name is Jesus. 39 books in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, say he's coming. 27 books that we call the New Testament say that he came, his name is Jesus, and he's here. But the question of this is not can you adopt a, a dogma, not can you not can you receive a plan, not can you keep certain rules. That none of, that's not the message of this book. This message is can you trust a person? One reason I struggle with religion every once in a while, I know that many of you have been to... Um, comparative religion classes, and, and there are, there's the idea that it really doesn't matter which religion you adhere to. And, and by the way, could I just tell you the truth? If it comes down to religion, it really doesn't matter. One's pretty much as bogus as another. It, it really doesn't matter. Because the whole point of religion is try. Everybody tries, everybody gets a trophy. It doesn't matter what you believe. That's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is very different. The message of the Bible says that we are messed up. I did a series called Freaking Messed Up. I mean, that's way beyond... I mean, and and it's still my favorite series I've done in all these years. Because it's way past your garden variety messed up. That's where we are. We don't need a set of rules. We don't need a religion. We don't need a dogma or creed to live by. We are messed up people who need a Savior. And I want to tell you what. Here's the deal. There's no dogma that can save broken people. And when I look at this book over and over and over, it just asks me the question, can I put confidence in Jesus? Now, here's where I want to go with this. For me, I put confidence in Jesus to save my soul when I was eight years old. But the Bible doesn't stop asking that question then. Because the Bible is going to ask you that question, and life is going to ask you that question over and over and over and over. Can you trust a person? And see, this is what was amazing me. I looked at myself and I said, yes, I have invited Dr. Jesus to come into my life to be my Savior. But now all this time as a God follower, I am living, I'm trying to live my life by by rules. And I'm coming up short. And, And so I'm saying, okay, God, just please show me how messed up I am. Show me what I need to do to fix this. And instead of God giving me answers, it's like he's surrounding me with his grace. It's like God saying, Mark, I'm not going to give you answers, but I'm just going to let you know. I'm here. Whether it's in your cousin sobbing in an airport, holding your head in her hands and praying for you. Whether it's your wife taking care of you 24 hours a day or a board that loves you and provides you a wonderful place to stay and, and rest. Or whether it's hundreds of people who are writing you messages of their love and affection and what god is doing in your life it was like god saying mark i'm not going to give you the answer i'm not going to tell you what's wrong with your body i'm not going to tell you why you are where you are i'm not going to tell you why you've hit the wall but i just want to show you that i love you there's a guy in the bible who went through the same thing and by the way i'm not fit to tie his rebox, but his name was paul and he was going through a similar situation and we don't know what it was he just says he had a thorn in the flesh There are people that think it's depression. Some people think he had an unsympathetic wife. There are those who feel like maybe he just had a health problem. Nobody knows. I think the reason why the Bible keeps it blank is so that you and I can fill in the blank with whatever our own personal thorn is. And so here's what Paul did. And he did something I find really interesting. He said, three times I pleaded with the Lord. And Bible scholars are really interested by that because what we learn here is that Paul normally prayed to God the Father. But here he's praying directly to Jesus. Paul said, I went directly to Dr. Jesus, and I asked him to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, the word for, the word, the personal pronoun my there is not the ordinary pronoun for my. There is a sort of generic personal pronoun for my, but this was very emphatic, and it means that which belongs to me personally. So, when Paul said, Jesus, I got this problem and I want you to take it away, Jesus said, No, I'm not going to take it away. But the grace that belongs to me personally is going to be in your life and it's going to be enough for you. I just want to take a few moments to preach a simple message to you about Dr. Jesus. Because I think all of us are going to get to the place where we're going to need to have that healing touch that only He can bring in our lives. I'm going to give you three simple thoughts. And then this will be the last time I've ever preached this message, okay? First thought is, you can always get in to see him. You can always get in to see him. <laughs> I was telling you about this great church in Atlanta that, where the pastor and I have gotten to be great friends. It's a huge church, and not only do they have a tremendous ministry to their community they, and a great ministry to the world, they have a phenomenal ministry to pastors all around the country. They have staff councils that are the very best and most gifted at working with leaders like me. And so I found myself on the other side of the table, you know, hundreds and you know, hundreds of times I've been the counselor, but for the first time in my life, I'm sitting on the other edge of the table. And I've always said to you guys that I deal with anxieties. And so the predominant, predominant prevailing idea was that I had an anxiety disorder. And so I went through, you know, interviews and they're talking to me. And then they started like giving me a battery of tests to take. And if you've ever been in that environment, you know, you're like answering all kinds of questions they're trying to sort out do you deal with anxiety disorder is it depression is what kind of depression is it and i not only took one i took like three or four of them and i promise you i answered a thousand questions and i did everything i could to answer them accurately i got a call from the the lead counselor in that department and he said mark we've had this all wrong you don't have an anxiety disorder you don't have depression you are possibly the most ADHD person we have ever seen in our lives. And he said, There is a specialist, world renowned specialist in this city. And I found out later that he, he speaks all over the world. He is so, he, he's just a world renowned specialist in ADHD. And he said his practice, because he's so good, his practice is pretty limited. He deals with CEOs of corporations, professional athletes, and because he is a believer, he will sometimes see senior pastors of large churches. And he said, this is early January, he said his next appointment is in late April, but he's heard your story, and he said if he will come in tomorrow, he will see you. And guys, I went into his office with Mary Allison, it was just... It was so cool because he he just was so excited about what God was doing at New Spring and how God had used me. He said, Mark, he said, and it was kind of funny. This is a side note. He gave both of us sort of a short test to confirm, see just how ADHD I was. He gave Mary Alice the same one. She answered the same questions regarding me. And when she gave it to him, he laughed. He said, in all these years of practice, I've never seen anybody put exclamation points beside anything. (laughs) And, and it was just like, it was so good. It was like hearing my world described and why I am the way I am. And he said, look, he said, we're not even sure this is a disorder. He said, it's just a collection of conditions. And he said, so many leaders have this. And he said, he said there are more conditions. But he said, let's just say there are 10. He said, five of them make you superhuman. Five of them make you, drag you under the water. And he said, we're going to deal with those five that drag you under the water. When Marielson and I left his office, he said, how do you feel? I said, I feel like I've just spent an hour in heaven. The reason I tell you that story, I was back in in Atlanta this week, and and the pastor and I that I've I've gotten to be so close with, after the service, we were going out to eat, and we went downtown to the chic, kind of trendy restaurant where they have Krispy Kreme shakes. I don't know that I've ever stared in the face of pure evil before, but I think that, that has got to be it. I still have the sugar buzz from last Sunday. But knew anyway, I was talking to him about this appointment I had, and he, he, he looked at me, and this, this guy is a huge leader in the country and a leader of his church, and he said, Mark, do you, do you know what? If people found out you went to see him, he said, you know what the first question they would ask you is? Who did he pass you on to? Because he doesn't hardly ever see anybody personally. And yet I thought about that moment when I walked in his office, and he, he greeted me like it, was, it made his day to get to talk to me. Listen, we're talking about a, a human who, who, who's a specialist in, in ADHD, and I'm grateful that I got in to see him. But now we're not talking about that. We're talking about Dr. Jesus. We're talking about the one who has all power, and the good news that I have for you is not only will he, will he see you any time, he's excited about seeing you. When I, when Maralice asked me, how do you feel? I said, I feel like I'm on an island of doubt surrounded by a sea of grace. I did the only thing I knew to do in the hotel room, because I didn't want to watch television. I just started writing a sermon to myself. Isn't that freaky? Never was this is a sermon from Mark. And I started, I opened the scriptures, and I began to think about what would that mean? How would I interpret that on an island of doubt surrounded by a sea of grace? And I instantly started thinking about a woman whose situation was somewhat similar to mine. I mean, I had a health concern, and and it wasn't getting any better. I was getting worse. And the doctors couldn't figure it out. But for me, it had just been a matter of weeks. This woman had had a problem for 12 years. She was hemorrhaging blood. She went to doctors. The doctors couldn't figure it out. Spent everything she had and still got worse. And one day, Jesus came to her town. And she didn't have the New Testament like you and I do, but she had those first 39 books that said he's coming. And there was a verse in Malachi that said that when the Messiah would come, he would have so much healing in him, it would be in the fringes of his robe. Now, I don't really know if that's the correct interpretation of that text, but she thought it was. And and so she she had the faith to think, if I can just touch the fringe of his robe, I can be well. And there was a taboo back in that day because of her particular issue. She couldn't touch anybody in public life, and so she thought she would just do it without anybody seeing her can you get that in your mind jesus is walking hundreds of people around somehow she finds a way to snake through the crowd and she gets up close enough and gets down low you know and kneels maybe kneels on her knees and there's this robe and she reaches out and just rubs her fingers against the robe of jesus and thinking nobody's ever gonna know but jesus stopped everything and he said wait a minute somebody touched me who did that And the disciples were always trying to educate Jesus. I never have figured that out. (laughs) The Bible says they were unlearned and ignorant men, but they were always trying to set Jesus straight. Can you imagine that? Jesus the creator of the universe. And they're like, who touched you? Are you kidding me? You're surrounded by hundreds of people. And Jesus said, no, somebody touched me totally different. I want you to read what he said. He says, somebody deliberately touched me. Look at these two words, I felt healing power go out of me. I think those of us who grew up in church or reading the Bible, we sort of have the idea that Jesus just healed people and he just had it in him and it just flowed out and it didn't, didn't really cost him anything. We need to go back and reread a chapter in the Old Testament, which is Isaiah 53. When we read isaiah 53 it's very interesting isaiah was able by faith god i don't think he understood what he was writing i think he was just writing down what god taught him to write 750 years before jesus was born several hundred years before the carthaginians invented crucifixion isaiah is like an eyewitness at the cross And he's telling about Jesus coming. And most of us are familiar, if you know your Bible, we're familiar with like Isaiah 53, 5. It's a very important verse. It says he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our iniquities. In other words, Jesus would die for our sins. And we love that part of Isaiah 53, and we get that. As well we should. But ladies and gentlemen, do we really understand that when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't just bearing our sins, he was also bearing our dysfunction and our disease? listen to verse 4 surely he took up our infirmities now i've given you the actual english words that that word means diseases disorders and anxieties well i knew i had anxieties but the, you know when it was taking up i mean I, it was 750 years or actually 780 years before it happened isaiah said he's going to carry it i mean it's like when he carried the cross what he was carrying was he was carrying our disorders and then in verse 5 it says by his wounds We are healed. In other words, when that lictor brought the whip down on Jesus' back and opened it up so much that Isaiah said, When we see him, he won't even look human. We need to understand that that was him paying for our healing. And honestly, I believe that when Jesus said to that woman, or he said to the crowd, I felt healing go out of me, you ready for this? I think he was saying, This is going to cost me. This just added to my bill. Maybe it was another stripe so how did he react to her how did he react how does he react to you and me in verse 47 the whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and that she had been immediately healed daughter he said to her your faith has made you well go in peace that night in Phoenix as I thought about why am I experiencing all this grace when I when I feel like such a failure I could hear this word coming to me from Jesus I mean, he didn't say to her, hey, woman, don't you understand this really is going to cost me? Don't you understand what what your healing is going to do to me? He didn't even want her to know about that. He just said, go and enjoy your healing. And that is what he says to you and me. That's the kind of love Dr. Jesus has for you. Some of us have grown up in rules-based religion, and all we can ever hear is judgment. But what Jesus wants you to do is to enjoy the grace that he bought for you. How do I know that he feels that way about you? In 1 Peter 5, verse 7, the Bible says, Cast all your anxiety on him, for he cares about you. That's very personal. It doesn't say God cares about all his children. That would be helpful, but he doesn't say that. It said he cares about you. Do you and I understand that we can always get in to see Dr. Jesus? At 3 in the morning or 2 in the afternoon, you can always get in to see him. Number two, real quickly, he has all the time in the world for you. Do you ever feel rushed at the doctor's office these days? And, and I understand their world. It's getting more and more difficult. It's really, imp- there's a challenge for doctors to get patients in and out, especially if it's a general practitioner. I don't know if you ever feel rushed at the doctor, or maybe you just feel rushed talking, you know, if, if you have a friend who says, what's going on in your life? And, and you, you, start, you try to start talking and then you can sort of tell your friend needs to move on. Do you realize that the creator, of the universe has all the time in the world to talk to you. I want to take you now to a psalm. It's very important to me, and I hope that you'll learn to love it like I've learned to love it. It's Psalm 142. Now, you know, when you open the psalms, a lot of times there will be a little inscription above a psalm that will tell you something. It's for the choir director or whatever. I love the inscription over Psalm 142. It just says, in a cave. You sort of get the feeling right out of the box. This is not David's happiest moment. And it's not. He's on the run for, for his life. And I, I was reading the work of an archaeologist who discovered this cave, and he said it's a particularly ugly, dank, dark cave. It's like you almost have to bend in half to get in there. And so David is in a cave, and he's not getting to experience what I experienced. I was experienced the love and the grace of all kinds of people. But David said, in some, and by the way, I was reading where a great leader said about this psalm, it's almost a tutorial on how to pray when you're in trouble. You ready for this? I mean, as I said, David didn't have my blessing. He said, as I sink in despair, my spirit ebbing away, you know how I'm feeling. Isn't that cool? David said, God, you know how I'm feeling. You know the danger I'm in. Look at verse 4. There's not a soul who cares what happens. I'm up against it with no exit. I cry out, God, call out, you're my last chance, my only hope for life. Oh, listen, please listen. I've never been this low. That was the line that synced up with me. In phoenix i've never been this slow i've been through some hard things but i've never been this okay david show us how to pray look at how david prayed this is in psalm 142 verse 1 and and, and i I had these words in red because i want you to see the sort of four levels to david's prayer to talk to god he said i cry i plead with god for mercy i spill out all my complaints I spell out all my troubles to him. I just see four levels of prayer here. The first thing is David is just so down, he's just crying. Hey, macho guys, isn't it good to know that a guy who wasn't afraid to go down to a valley with a bag of rocks and go mano a mano with a giant nine feet tall, isn't it good to know that a guy like that could say, I just cried? Honest to God, I really believe the deepest prayer you'll ever pray is a prayer that you can't even get into words. You're just hurting so bad that all you can say is, God, you know. And David said, I just cry for a while. And then he said, I plead for mercy. I mean, this is like, David, I'm not even talking about what's going on in my life. God, I just need you. If you don't help me, I'm dead. I plead for mercy. David, mercy is what we don't deserve. David was saying, God, I I don't deserve help. I know I've got, I mean, I felt that way. I said, God, I feel like a failure. But David said, God, please help me anyway. And then the third level. If you ever hit the wall, there's going to be a lot of stuff that gets bottled up inside you. It's been there for days, it's been there for weeks, and it's just bottled up. And David said, after I cry for a while, and I beg God for mercy, it just comes spilling out. And it's not organized, and it may sound, and here's the deal, God is big enough, his shoulders are big enough for you to freak out. His shoulders are big enough for you to even be unhappy and angry. David said, my emotions just poured out. And I love that side of it. He was just saying, God, you will listen to me. Jesus, you will listen to me when my emotions pour out. And then his mind kicked in, number four. David said, I'm just thinking through all my problems and laying them out before God one after the other. I'm spelling out my troubles in detail. Do you see why that's a primer on how to pray when you're in trouble? I cried. I begged God for mercy. Poured out all my emotions. And I just lined out my thoughts before God. You know what, he's got time for you to do that. I mean, he's got all the time that you have for him. And I love how David closes out the psalm. He says, get me out of this dungeon so I can thank you in public. That's that's the thing I do love about this series. This is more personal than I want to be, but I'll tell you what I love. I love this that I can stand on stage and say, yes, this is true. Dr. Jesus has indeed never lost a case. He worked in my life, and I can stand before you and thank him in public. David said, that's what I want. Jesus has time to listen to you cry. He will listen to you beg for mercy. He will listen to you spell out your emotions. And he will listen to you line out your issues. He'll have all the time for you that you have for him. Well, how do I close out a six-week series on lessons I learned when I hit the wall? Well, one thing I try to do in all my talks is I try to get into, maybe it's the old debater in me that has to debate both sides of every resolution. But I try to assume what a person might be thinking if they disagree. So I wanna close out by going someplace that some of you may be thinking right now that listen to this talk and say, but wait a minute. Because it would be easy to say, well, Mark, look at you. Man, God brought you out, you're feeling good. You've had a tremendous year. New Springs are the greatest year of growth in its history. And, and, and now you can stand before us all and thank God for his goodness in your life. Well, what about me? My situation's not getting any better, and it could be because of health or something. You could, you could look down the road and you say, it's not going to get any better. Well, someday, we're going to have something physically that isn't going to get better. I'm not trying to be cute, but the statistics on death are one out of every one dies. And we're all going to get something that we're not going to get over, have an accident. Unless Jesus comes back, I'm, doing a, I'm starting a series next week called Strange Days Indeed. And we're going to talk about the days we're living in and Jesus coming back. So there, are, there will be, by the way, it's the biggest series I've ever been part of. Um, <laughs> that starts next weekend. So yeah, there will be people who don't have to die, and we'll talk about that next week and get into it. But the fact of the matter is most of us are going to die, or somebody that we love is going to die. And sometimes people lose their faith at moments like that because we pray for God to heal somebody we love, and they pass. That's why I want to close with this third thought, that even death itself is a healing appointment with Dr. Jesus. Do you realize that? I mean, when the time comes for you and I to die, or somebody who we love to pass, who has confidence in Jesus, that that very moment will be the greatest moment of their life because 2 Corinthians 5, 5 says we weren't made for this life. We were made for the life to come. I mean, I, I, I'm an old guy, and a lot of you are really, really young adults. I love that about New Spring. A lot of you are 20, 25 years old. Could I just rain on your prayer for a moment? Because a lot of us have the prevailing idea that I'm going to get to a place in life where everything's going to work. Could I just be honest with you? You will never get to that place because you can get nine pieces out of ten all working just finding that tenth one will mess you up this is a broken world and sometimes you will have nine out of ten messed up so this this is a world that just doesn't work and and we were not designed for this world we were designed for the life to come and here's the great thing about it well I I, I thought about several verses I could share with you you know the Bible says to be asking for the bodies to be present with the Lord 2 Corinthians 5 the Bible says precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints and that's because Jesus is on the other, he's at the other airport. <laughs> it's a departure at this airport. It's an arrival at that airport. But I wanted to leave you my favorite, just to let you know that even when death comes, it's going to be a healing appointment with Dr. Jesus. David, again, is writing in the Psalms. And, and one of the things that David is focused on is he's thinking about how many people around him just live for this life. And they get all, the, they get all that they want out of this life if they get money and they have, stu- you know, stuff. And David would say in this psalm, with your hand, Lord, save me from men, from men of the world, whose portion is this life. Portion would be like what you serve, what you served up, like if you're a portion size when you go to a restaurant. And David said, God, I don't want to hang with people. I really don't. David said, they will mess me up. I don't really want to hang around people who get what they want out of this life because David said, that's not me. I, I, and, and I think David was like the dove that Noah released, you know, the dove flew out over the waters and there was nothing that satisfied the dove. When Noah released the raven, there was all kinds of dead animals floating on the surface and the raven found what it wanted, but the dove came back. And a lot of you, uh, hopefully that's how you and I are, I mean, we, we, we function in the world, but we don't find what makes us happy here. There's something within us that crazes, says, I was made for more than this. And that was David. And he said, I, I don't want to hang with people who, whose portion is this life. You fill their bellies with what you have in store. In other words, David said, you're the one who supplies what they get in this life. Their sons are satisfied. They leave the surplus to their children. David said, there are people in this world, they just want to get what they want. They want to take sure, make sure their kids are taken care of. When they die, I leave stuff to their kids. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. That's fine. But David said, that's not enough for me. And here's the verse I love so much. David said, but I will see your face in righteousness. When I awake, I'll be satisfied with your presence. David looked forward to the time when he was gonna dine and he would go to sleep in this life and he would open his eyes. Hey, do you ever have surgery and you're under anesthesia and you feel yourself coming out of it, you don't know who you are, what you're doing, where you are? Do you ever like open your eyelids, your eyelids flutter and you open and there's the person you love most in the world looking over you with a smile? I've been there a couple times and opened my eyes trying to figure out what in the world's going on I see Mary Alice. And David saw that when he died. He said, I know that when I die I'm going to open my eyes and I'm going to see you. And what David is inferring here is that he's going to not be the way he was. He wouldn't have sin in his life anymore. He would be like Jesus. And he said, when I open my eyes and I see you and I know I'm in heaven, David said, that'll be enough for me. This last week, I was on a three day cruise, which was also a pastor's conference. It was great. We had meetings all morning long, we had meetings all evening, but in the afternoons we were free to go where we were docked. But a lot of the time, on you know, short cruise like that, we were just running up and down the coastline. There's a little tiny balcony outside my room where we had a couple of chairs, and, and, and I love to just, you know, I, I love the beach, and God put me as far from the beach as He possibly could. <laughs> so I love to just go out on my balcony and overlook the Caribbean. But in the next-door cabin to me is a pastor, was a pastor friend of mine. And, it, and I think sometimes when I would go out, you know, he would just come out. And, and, and we would stand there, and we would overlook the Caribbean, and we would just talk to each other about deep spiritual things. And it was great, because I love Ed, and Ed really speaks into my life, and we're just, we're just best, best friends. There's a new movie out called Courageous. And Ed plays the role of the pastor in the movie. And the reason why Ed, I think, was, first of all, he had, when he was at University of Arizona, he had a double major, and one of his majors was in, was in theatrics or in, in acting, so he, he was perfect in that sense, but also Ed had a real tragedy in his life about four years ago. He lost his beautiful wife, Tammy, to an automobile accident. And as Ed and I stood talking to each other, overlooking the Caribbean, he began to talk about it. And he said... He arrived on the scene, and his wife had already passed, and his daughter was going to be life-flighted to the hospital. She was fine, but she needed to be life lighted to the hospital. And Ed said, I sat down in the helicopter. I could hear my daughter being fastened in in the back. And he said, the pilot introduced himself to me. And I met him, and I shook his hand. And he said, at that moment, I could see behind me they were placing a cover over the wife of my body, the body of my wife. He said, Mark, it was as surreal a moment as anyone can imagine. When suddenly, he said, the helicopter just shot up into the sky. He said, it rose with such velocity, he said, I felt like I shot straight up. And he said, the Holy Spirit at that moment said, that's what happened to Tammy when the time came. She just shot straight. My hope today is that you and I will learn more than we've ever known before. That it's not about adopting a set of rules or a dogma or a creed. It's about confidence in a person, confidence in Jesus personally. Dr. Jesus, you can always get in to see him. He has all the time that you have for him. And not even death itself can stop him from practicing his wonderful brand of medicine. Because even when you die, it'll be a healing appointment with a great physician. Let's pray. Father, thank you for letting us be here today, for letting us learn. May your Holy Spirit make it very real to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you pray with me just one more moment? You could be here today and you're saying, Mark, what do I do to have a relationship with God? Man, it comes down to one thing. Can you put confidence in Jesus? Can you trust him? Can you put your confidence in him? You can't get to heaven by being good. You say, well, Mark, do you want me to join New Spring? I love New Spring like I love my life, but New Spring can't get you out of Sedgwick County when you die. You say, do you want me to be baptized? Baptism is a great thing, but Wichita water can't wash away sin. There's only one way to get into heaven. There's only one way to have a relationship with God, and that is to put your confidence in the one who was nailed to the cross to pay for your sins, to put your confidence in the one who carried your disease and your dysfunction and with whose stripes you were healed. And if you will put your confidence in him, if you will trust him, in other words, if you will move aside from confidence in anything else and place your confidence in Jesus, God promises to give you the gift of eternal life. I'm going to pray a prayer. These aren't magic words, but if you'd like to join me, this prayer is an opportunity for you to call out to Jesus. You ready? Here we go. Dear Jesus, I believe you love me, and I believe you care about me, And I believe you did for me what I can't do for myself. That you died to pay for my sins. And like the woman in the Bible who touched your garment, today I just want to ask you for salvation. I want to ask you to forgive me and make me God's child. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.